2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. Paul's change of plans. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us, just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first, so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia, and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it is by faith you stand firm. Thanks, Janine, and keep your Bibles open there. Um, I want to extend a special welcome to Cameron. Cameron Drury is back, and look, he's been, you know he's been studying. He's, not only is he a fully qualified commercial pilot, but he ducks the class this year, and that's a remarkable thing. And he's got a couple of things ahead to pursue specifically a potential employment opportunity or career opportunity with Qantas. It was a training school. So he's done an amazing effort, and we just want to... First of all, we want to acknowledge parents, right? Dads, mums, you know? That's, so first of all, well done, family. Um, but also um, our prayers, too, as a church. We've been praying for you. Glad to hear how you went, and, and well done, and we'll continue to, to pray for you. And Makili, as you work out so many things before you, as you prepare to, to be married, and, and uh, great to have you here. Well, we're up to this, this next part of our series, part two, or week two, in our series looking at um, 2 Corinthians, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he started, founded, loved, but a church that had begun to turn their backs on him and to really start questioning and doubting the relationship that they had with him. And in that particular passage, what we actually see is some of the accusations that this church, the Corinthian church, Corinthian church, by the way, is often held when we read through 1 Corinthians, sometimes we look at the Corinthian church as this wonderfully spiritual example of the church that we can aspire to. It has the passages in it uh, all about the gifts of the Spirit and using them, of speaking in tongues and great spiritual languages and doing all this sort of thing. And we have often in the past drawn lots of examples from the Corinthian church that we've thought maybe we need to emulate to get this sort of blessing and to be a, a really vibrant, spirit-filled church. The reality is Paul was writing anything but that. 
to the Corinthian church. He was actually writing to them because he was deeply concerned for them. In fact, what they thought was being filled with the Spirit and being a wonderfully, vitally Spirit-filled church was actually quite the opposite. And he's writing to them to say, you might be filled with whatever this Spirit is talking about and you've, you've kind of evoked, but you're actually, you've turned your backs on the Gospel and you're in grave danger. And there were things that he had to address with them. So you can understand over time the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church, you know, a church thinking they're doing wonderfully, spiritually wonderful, and then to find out from their founder that in fact they're not and that they're in danger, you know, you can imagine some awkward tension in the relationship, right? We're looking at the second letter. There are potentially three and possibly even four letters uh, historically that Paul wrote to this church. The Lord in his wisdom has throughout history kept these two for us as his people today. And we call them 1st and 2nd Corinthians. So we're looking at 2nd Corinthians and the second part of chapter 1. You see, Paul is suddenly in this position where he feels he has to defend himself. This kind of brouhaha has been happening for a little while. And I don't know how have you felt if you've ever been accused of something. Maybe think about that just for a moment. When you get accused of something or an accusation is made against you, how does it make you feel? Say someone or a group of people were to hear of your commitment to being a Christian person, and they responded to that by questioning them. You know, a little bit like we heard from Evan, wife of his friend, sort of said, you know, you've been talking up a great storm about being Christian, but are you really? I don't see much of that in your life. You know, how do we feel about that? Or worse still, maybe you've been accused of not being someone who can be trusted, or you've been accused of someone second-guessing your motives. That's the kind of thing that's happening to Paul here, but worse, and there's a list of things that he's being accused of. They're accusing him of having a hidden agenda. They're saying he's got ulterior motives, that he's a double-minded person, you know, the kind of person that sort of says yes one minute and no the next. We're going to unpack those as we go through this passage together. And what we see, first of all, is Paul defending himself. And what he does, interestingly, is rather than to go and justify his actions, and he kind of does do that, but he does it by pointing them to God, pointing them to the God who is both their God and his, pointing them to who God is. That God is a faithful God, that he's a God that can be trusted, and that his promises he makes good on. And put simply, Paul is wanting the Corinthians to stand strong together in Christ. This is his heart for them. If there's ever, and it's not hidden, it's a very obvious motive. He's saying, I just want to see you as a church standing strong together in Christ. He doesn't want to see them turning on each other. He doesn't want to see them missing the point and overplaying their freedom in Christ. That's what they were kind of guilty of. They're so free in Christ, they could do anything and were doing anything. And he said, I just want you to stand strong together in Christ. I don't want you to turn on each other. I don't want you to second guess each other. I don't want you to make accusations. I certainly want you to still love me. I've founded you, is what Paul's saying to this church. Now, for those who were here last Sunday, I hope you can see why we put a pause on going through this series together as a church in the context of me sharing with you as a church that I feel the Lord's calling me out of ministry here, announcing that I'll be my ministry as senior pastor here at the end of this year. Can you kind of see why we decided not to preach on this passage last Sunday? Can you imagine how you would receive that? I'm seeing saying about this church as having tension with its leader and so on and all those kinds of things and, you know, what's their real motives and, you know, it just wasn't an appropriate passage. That's why we went with Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And if you weren't here last Sunday and haven't been on Facebook or whatever and that's the first time you've heard that, I'm sorry you heard it so flippantly, but it was a very a special service last Sunday. We do have a recording of the message and I encourage you to get online and to hear that so you can hear fully the reasons given and the word from God about seasons that we all go through in life. 
and uh, how God takes us as individuals and as churches through seasons. So it wasn't an appropriate message for two reasons. First of all, I'm not the Apostle Paul and you're not the Corinthian church, but we can all learn and hear from God's word. And so with that aside, let's continue. Let's look right at the beginning, the first three verses from verses 12 to 14. This is some background about what's going on in Paul's context with the Corinthians. This is our boast, he says, our conscience testifies that we, and he's talking about himself and the other apostles, the authorised apostles, the official apostles called by Jesus, not other apostles that were setting themselves up at the time, that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relationship with you. And we've done this in the holiness and sincerity that are from God. We've done so not according to worldly wisdom, but according to God's grace. We do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that, as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can actually boast of us, just as we will boast of you on the day of the Lord Jesus. So what's going on here? Well, did you hear it? Can you pick up some of the accusations that Paul is defending himself from? Some of the accusations the Corinthians were levelling at him. It was Paul who shared the gospel of Jesus with them. He's the one who drew them together in the first place, both Jews and Gentiles. Jews who realised Jesus was their Messiah and that all people now are invited into God's family to become God's people through faith in Jesus. As well as Gentiles, those who were pagan worshippers who have been pursuing all sorts of gods, small g, and, you know, bound up in all sorts of religious rituals and things who were suddenly seeing the freedom in Christ as the one true Lord the one God, the saviour of all, and that they too could be part of God's family now. That's how he brought them together through that gospel. And he's called them, and all his letters are about in the New Testament, writing to that Christian community and saying, keep united, keep standing strong in Christ. That's who you are, you're God's people in Christ. Well, we can pick up how some of that relationship has begun to go south between Paul and the Corinthian church. You see these other more assertive, more articulate more charismatic, you know, the sort of people that just gravitate to naturally, had come into the church and they were starting to teach all sorts of wild, weird, wonderful things and they were generating this, you can tell the fruit of of that kind of stuff, generating this competitive spirit amongst the Corinthians and some of them were like aligning themselves with different leaders and you can read about it in 1 Corinthians. But Paul was the one dropping lower and lower and lower in their eyes. In fact, to the point they were despising him. They were looking down upon him And they were looking at these other leaders instead. And see, Paul's no longer with them. And so it's hard for him to continue leading and demonstrating the authority and the power of the gospel amongst them. And instead, these other ones had come in. And so Paul writes to them. And he just says to them, listen, I was going to come and visit. I did have plans to visit you. He's visited before and he was going to come again. But those plans change. And they're really suspicious. It's upset them as a church. And and they treat him and they go, see, you just got this hidden agenda, Paul. And Paul's answer is to remind them of the way that he lived amongst them in the first place. He's saying, surely you'd know that if you just recalled the value of our relationship, you know who I am, I know who you are. We've pulled together, we've served together. We've loved one another, we've loved our community, we've reached out, we've we've led people to faith in Christ together. You know our relationship. Surely, if you could just recall that, you'd be able to continue to love and trust me. And Paul says there's never been a hidden agenda. He's never had a hidden agenda. You can read Paul like an easy-to-read cartoon book with big pictures. His actions were very transparent amongst them. And he says as far as he's concerned, he has a clear conscience about the way he has conducted himself when he was there with them. He has nothing to hide, and he has, in fact, lived with holiness and sincerity. 
You know, the word there that Paul uses for holiness and in other versions, some versions it says integrity. The holiness there is described as something that can bear the test of both the light of the sun and the heat of the sun. Think about that. So you can hold it up and the light of the sun reveals it, right? So it bears the test. It's pure. There's nothing hidden in it. And it can also withstand the immense heat of the sun. Paul is confident that he has a clear conscience and his conduct amongst them has been in such a way that it could stand up under the most intense scrutiny. And so in light of these accusations, did you notice how he responds? Well, he points them to how he lived amongst them and that his conduct was in accordance with God's grace. So the second thing he says, holiness and sincerity and then according to God's grace and therefore not according to worldly wisdom. And this is the big tussle going on with the Corinthians. They think they've embraced this spiritual wisdom. They haven't. They've just embraced another version of worldly wisdom. That's why he tells them in 1 Corinthians that God's wisdom is foolishness to human wisdom, right? And yet God's foolishness is the wisest thing and the greatest wisdom that we need. That is the death of his son, Jesus. You see, it's worldly wisdom that applies hidden agendas and motives against people. It's worldly thinking and worldly wisdom that looks at one another suspiciously and tries to read between the lines and look at what's really being said and so on and so forth. We do that a lot today as humans because we live in a worldly world, right? And you'll hear it lots, you'll see it lots all the time in leadership, in politics, this constant what's being said, what's not being said, what we think's being said, and on and on it goes. It keeps journalists employed and now lawyers employed too. But you can see that, right? It's not so for Christian community. Not so for those who are called to stand strong in Christ. It's quite the opposite, in fact. And Paul reminds them of his conduct. He says, it wasn't like that when I was here with you. We didn't have to second-guess each other and you didn't have to think there was another thing being said when it's not. Your yes was yes and your no was no, which we'll see in a moment. Just remember, Paul doesn't have a hidden agenda or a motive. Paul's been commissioned by God himself, by the resurrected Jesus. He appears to him, snaps him out of his religious zealousy and says, Paul, you're not serving me, you're persecuting me. Right? Paul's life was just turned on its head. If you look at that standing up to the light of the sun and the heat of the sun, that's just like a magnifying glass. It's just seared straight through his soul. There's nothing more to hide. Jesus arrested him, captured him, and commissioned him and sent him to go and spread that gospel and draw together churches and plant new churches and grow the kingdom of God. That's Paul's motive. He had no option but to obey that. Well, what about ourselves, you and I? You know, if we're really honest, if I'm honest, let's all be honest, we have to admit that sometimes we may not always have completely pure motives for our conduct towards one another. That's the wrestle, right? We struggle with godly living and worldly living. And even when we do something good and noble, even those really good things we can do, sometimes they get caught up, don't they? The things we do, the good things we do, can be entangled with at least a drop of self-interest or selfish motive of some kind. Someone once said, purity of action may be difficult, but purity of motive is even more difficult. Think about that. It's one thing, isn't it, to say, I'm going to do the right thing and to actually do the right thing. Lots of people doing the right thing, living good lives. But having right motives is a lot harder. You know, altruism, altruism is doing good things for the sake of good, just for doing it for the sake of good, no other motive. But that in itself, it feeds back into a form of self-righteousness. We actually start feeling good. We, we get a buzz out of it. So altruism can actually become doing good things for ourselves. So it makes us feel good. You know, it's, it's quite complex, isn't it? Well, Paul says that we're different to that. In fact, he reminds the Corinthians and he's reminded the Galatian church as well, similarly, about what we're being called to as God's people, 
as disciples of Jesus. We are new creations in him. We've been changed. We are now called to live differently. You remember that passage in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20? I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I will live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's who we are. That's our new identity in Christ. It's a big calling and with God's help, Paul was able to live a life with no hidden motives when it came to the gospel, when it came to the way he served and loved the churches that he'd called. And the challenge is there for all of us today, still, isn't there, as disciples of Jesus. Are we known for our integrity? Are we known for our sincerity and our, and our holiness? Do our actions and our lives hold up to the light and to the heat of the sun? Or are we known for having other motives, perhaps hidden agendas, whether we're aware of it or not? This isn't about being perfect, by the way. This is about living a life of confession, repentance and faith. It's that cycle. Because motives will always pop up. It's about confessing them. It's about being honest and transparent and saying, yeah, I was actually, yeah, you're right, I was thinking this. Or, yeah, there may have been a bit of this behind that. Yeah, I'm sorry, I shouldn't do that. Thanks for calling it out. Or, That's the life of community standing strong together in Christ. Well, what else were the Corinthians accusing Paul of? Well, there were some who were saying he didn't mean what he said. And words are interesting, aren't they? See what he writes there? He says, for we don't write you anything you can't read or understand, he says. So he's kind of, they know him now more through his letters than in person because he hasn't been with them for long, for very often. But words are interesting, aren't they? They're powerful. Words actually create, they're, they're creative. It shouldn't come as a surprise. God created all things by the word, the spoken word. And so we can use our words to express our thoughts. We can use them to express our feelings, what's going on for us. Or we can use our words to hide those things, to cover them up. And few of us can honestly say that we mean every word we say, although we like to think that is the case and we strive for it. Sometimes we say things because they are the right things to say, but other times we say things because we know that's what the other person needs to hear or wants to hear. That's just how we are. But for Paul, in his gospel ministry, he was striving to be someone who spoke with sincerity and always in accordance with God's grace. And he was striving to be clear and straightforward in the way he wrote and communicated with this church. Put simply, he wants his yes to mean yes and his no to mean no. And yet in verses 15 to 17, we see that this church must have been saying that Paul was making promises he doesn't keep. This is the accusation. He says to them, because I was confident of this, I planned to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. So he's got this trip planned and he's going to see them on the way there and on the way back. I planned to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then to visit you on the way back from Macedonia and then you would have sent me on my way to Judea. And when I planned this, did I do it lightly or do I make my plans in a worldly manner so that in the same breath I say, yes, I'm coming, but really I'm not going to come. That's what they're accusing him of and he's going, I don't do this lightly. He said he would visit this church and he postponed the visit. Now, why did he postpone the visit? They're saying, oh, you've got a hidden agenda. It's not a hidden agenda. He actually postponed the visit. He's fully aware that the relationship has broken down. He's most likely just giving them space some time. They accuse him of being the kind of man who makes flippant promises and he's indecisive, sort of can't be trusted. He couldn't be pinned down to a definite yes or no. They're upset with him. And they're upset at the fact, they go, see, he's changed his plans. This guy can't be trusted. It's all building up to these accusations. Paul originally thought that he would go this same journey again. He would make the 400-kilometre trip and he'd just do it. He planned on coming to Corinth and instead something changed his mind. He's now decided to go the long way around and he's dropping off one of those visits. He probably wanted to come that way and give the Corinthians an opportunity to just kind of to settle things down. 
didn't want to stir up trouble again. Last time he came, he had to get stuck into them, and it was a painful visit. You see, Paul has good reasons for his decision and pure motives. And in fact, it was actually out of love for the church. It wasn't deliberately sending mixed messages as they accused him of. Now, obviously, communication would have been harder in those days, a lot harder to get a message out to a church to say, hey, listen, I know I said I was coming. Plans have changed. I can't get there, and this is why. Those sort of messages would have taken a long time to get there. So they would have got this letter well and truly past the time he was able to visit. But Paul's saying, it's not like I'm playing games here. This is not something I planned lightly, but rather he loves this church and he wants to give them an opportunity to regroup and to maybe come to their senses and his next visit a more joyful one. Well, where does Paul go in this defence? The same place. He writes this powerful and beautiful response, pointing their attention to God. He says, but as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it's always been yes. Do you see what Paul's doing? It sounds a bit tricky. He's not, he's not going, oh, I, I do speak the truth all the time and leaving it at that. He's going, you know, when it comes to you, as surely as God's faithful, we're not double-minded and we're not two-tongued and we're not yes and no. Why? Because of God. Points them to God. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are always yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us, the people of God, to the glory of God. And now it's God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ, he says to the church. God anointed us. He set his seal of ownership on us and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. You know, the God who loves us so much that he would send his own son, Himself in the flesh is the God who keeps his promises. God is certain to fulfill everything and has fulfilled everything and will fulfill even the promises that we're still waiting to see completely fulfilled. All the things he has ever made, all the promises and commitments he's made, he is good on them. He will fulfill them. He cannot not. Have a look at verse 20 again. Jesus Christ is the personal guarantee of God that both the greatest and the least of his promises are all true. You want proof God's a God of his word? he did the most undeserved, unimaginably loving thing that none of us would possibly do. That is, send himself to come and save us in the person of Jesus Christ. To allow us to destroy him, kill him, crucify him, and to do that to open a way of relationship between him and us, all people and us. And so we say to that, we become a people of yes too, right? We say amen. And you can say that from this little point here. You know, amen is one of the few Hebrew words that still gets spoken globally. It really does. And not just when someone says a prayer or after grace, but the reason why we do that is because it's a collective yes, if we're going to summarise it. Quite literally means, may it be so, or yes, I agree. It's an affirmation. It's great to hear when preaching sometimes. Amen. That's what the word means. And so we get to say that. As truthful as God is to his faith and faithful to his promises, he's yes in Jesus Christ in all things, and we're his people called, we, we say Amen. Yes, as well. That's what Paul's pointing the Corinthians to. It's an expression of truth. It's not some glib formality or a ritual. God is certain to make good on all his promises, and the greatest of these is the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. But Paul makes one final point about trusting God's promises, and that is we have this guarantee, which is here in part and yet to come fully. And he reminds them of the seal of his ownership upon us. And he's done this by giving us a deposit of his Holy Spirit. That's who lives in each one of us when we come to faith in Jesus. You think about when you make a large purchase, a car or a house, what is it usually you've got to do? Well, you've got to put up a deposit, right? 
And what's the posit saying? It's making a commitment that you are going to follow through on this deal. You're paying in part and you will follow through at the end. One day you'll pay the rest off in full. And if it's a house, that day may seem to never ever be at the end. Well, the gift of the Holy Spirit is God's own down payment. It's his deposit in that promise that, that we are his and that we will always be his on the day of Christ's return and as we live eternally with him. That's who the gift of the Holy Spirit is. He's God's down payment. He's a deposit. He's a pledge. There are still greater things to come for those who know and love him. Well, what about us, church? Uh, There are just two things, and they're quite straightforward. Two things to be encouraged by this morning. Of what standing strong together in Christ, how it might outwork in and amongst us. The first one is this. Let's be people who strive, at least strive, to be people of our word, to be people who keep our word. Promises should never be made lightly because they can just as easily be broken, can't they? As easily as we can make them, we can also not fulfil them. That's being a yes and no person. And because we can trust God wholeheartedly to be a faithful, a trustworthy, a reliable promise keeper, we can strive to be the same in response. We can strive to reflect that character of God in our lives as his people. Not aiming for achieving perfection, but it's certainly working towards who we know God to be and demonstrating that. And so before we make a promise of anything, count the cost of what it means to keep it. We've got to follow through. One thing that should characterise us as Christians is our ability to be faithful to our commitments. We're not to be a people that hedge our bets. This is a real challenge for anyone under 52, right? Isn't today all about hedging your bets? When it comes to committing, when it comes to saying, yeah, I'll do this. Yeah, I'll be at that. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. We should do that. We'll we'll just see. So I can say that because we know the person wants to hear it, but I'll just see in case something better comes along. That's a yes and no person, a double-minded person. It just is. We can be different to that. We can be those who say, yes, I'm going to go to that. Something better comes up and we say, well, I've already said I'm going to that. So that's my yes and that's my no. People who yes is yes and no is no we stand strong together in christ we can do our best to be a people who live with a clear conscience you know it's actually a liberating way of living it takes a while but it's a liberating way of living the second thing i'd encourage us to take heart with today and to remember is that even if people let us down and they will and we will we will let down others even as they do god is always faithful to put your trust in god don't put your trust in people And if people have let you down, and I know it hurts, in time, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, did I have too much trust in a person and not in God? And it's not meant to harden us and make us more calloused and more, you know, cynical and more guarded in future. It's just a question worth reflecting on for ourselves. People will let us down. We are unfaithful to each other. But God isn't. God is always faithful. Remember that song we sung earlier about belonging to God. He's a faithful God. We are children of God. We're daughters. We are sons of God. And he's faithful. And he loves us. And he's for us. He's a reliable God. He actually makes declarations still about us in Christ. The things he says about us in Christ, he says that we're righteous. He only sees Christ in us. We're righteous, he says. You're righteous because of Christ in you. He sees us as holy in his sight because of Christ, because of Jesus. That's why he can make us, welcome us to be brothers and sisters of Jesus. We come into his family, God's family, through him, through his son. He came and he died for our sins. He's he's dealt with those things and he only sees 
uh, and he's placed his spirit in us as a deposit and he only sees Jesus and he's promised that that's, that's how it is now and that's how it's going to be forever and that's how we're called to live. He's, he's literally investing himself in us, in his own presence by the Holy Spirit. I can tell you this, God does not make bad investments. He does that out of his great love for us. Well, we're going to conclude with communion this morning. We're going to go straight into it together. And there's an opportunity as, as we prepare our hearts to do that, just to reflect on a couple of questions to want to raise with us and to just to think through and to continue thinking through. And in a moment, I'll pray to, to, to finish off this part. And during the prayer, the, the helpers could come down and, and prepare the table and, and get us ready. And as our musicians can come forward during that time too, after I've prayed. We're going to be led in a song and an item. And it's a familiar one to us. And I want you to reflect on these questions as we're led in in that item in just a moment. We gather around this table together as, as God's people. This is a reminder of what it means to stand firm in Christ. This is who and why we stand firm in Christ. And which promises of God do you and I need to be reminded to hold on to this morning? Maybe we're uh, in a position where we need to be reminded of God's promises concerning something in our past. Something has happened to us, something we might have done uh, that we regret. Something has happened to us that we had no control over, but it's, it's hurt us, it's damaged us. Well, God promises to forgive all sins. That's what this is as we gather around here. That's his promise. In Christ, he forgives all sins. He forgives us, us of our sins against others, the things that we know we shouldn't have done and did do, the, the worst of them things in the past that come back to remind us of what we've done, God has forgiven those in Christ. The things that have happened to us, we didn't have any control over. God has forgiven those things, those sins against us, made against us. And we don't have to be defined by them anymore. God promises to forgive our sins of the past. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Maybe um, you're someone that needs to be reminded about God's promises right in the present, here and now. Well, again, as you've heard this morning, let me say it again, God promises to be with us and to help us. He's a very real presence in our time of need. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 to 6, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, so we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. How wonderful to know that, that God is with us always. He's there to help us. We need not be afraid of anything that we're going through right now. Maybe you're someone that stresses more about the future. But what does God's promises say about that? Well, we sung it earlier. Let me remind you it came from the words of Jesus in John chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I will take you to be with me. That you also may be where I am. How is that for a promise, eh? We will be with the Lord in a place that he is especially and specifically prepared for us. And he promises us that. He says, where he is, we will be also. What a future. That's our future. Whatever it is you're concerned about between now and then, that's our ultimate future. 
It puts into perspective, doesn't it, the things that we often fear and dread and are apprehensive about. We can stand strong together in Christ because God is faithful to his promises. He keeps them. His yes is yes and his no is no. Let us pray as we prepare our hearts and as the, the team comes forward and as our helpers come forward. Thank you. Father, we thank you for this opportunity uh, to gather around the table to be reminded of what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. To be reminded that all the promises you've made before, now and in the future have been evidenced and displayed to us and shown to us in the giving of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins, for past, for present and for future. We thank you for the assurance that you are always with us and that you will bring us to be with you on that final day, whether we die now in the meantime or whether uh, we're there at the end when you return, when Christ returns in all his glory. We thank you for this very um, uh, beautiful and simple way of remembering that, the broken body of Jesus, the shed blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Thank you that we can stand together in Christ and do that symbolically in this special way around the Lord's table. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.